Bear Siragusa, and you are listening to the Hunting Hound Podcast presented by W Hunting Supply. All right, I'm sitting here with Becky Dwyer. How are you doing, Becky? I am just chugging along. How about you? About the same. Yeah, got done with a long, long day of work. Was the yeah started or actually, it's been a long couple of days. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I was going to make pizza for my son and I. And made the made the dough, got it all ready, and then he asked me a question, and I came back in stupidly and answered his question, and went back out to find that Mike the Beagle had eaten the entire pizza dough, which was a yeast dough, so he immediately started to bloat. So I've spent the last, uh, I shouldn't say I, we, my wife has unfortunately been inflicted. I inflicted this all on her too. Dealing with a vomiting beagle for the last 24 hours. He seems pretty okay now, but yeah. Huh. Funny you mentioned yeah. that. Uh, about a week ago, we left the shed door open mm. and somehow they got into dog food and the one beagle just is horrendously gluttonous. I mean, will be to where he can't do anything but stand there, can't sit, can't lay down, can't anything. And I caught him in the act of it. So I'm like, all right, well, you're going to throw up for the next two hours. And sure enough, because it was like, I mean, put a pin in him and he would have flown around right. like a balloon. He was that dang oh, bloated. Sure. So yeah, that's, and then I'm like, gosh, I don't know what's worse, laying around bloated or just puking your guts out for the next Yeah. X amount of time, but I don't know either. Yeah. The, the, the scary thing with the pizza dough, it was, it was raw dough. It wasn't like a, you know, prepared crust. So, <clears throat> right. And with the yeast, cause it's like a yeast dough, the, you know, the, the danger is, is that it's just going to keep sort of yeasting in there, especially with the, Expansion. you know, how much of it he ate. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, he was, <laughs> I've, Felt a little bad for him. He was projectile vomiting for, for quite a long time. So, but and I guarantee he regretted none absolutely of it. none of it. I mean, none of it. Instantly, the second he was done vomiting, he was trying to steal food from the counter again. So he's learned nothing from it, which is which is fine. Which is fine. But on that beagles, they're just a they trick. are, they are especially beagle puppies. And on that note. You wanted to talk about puppies today. I do. I always want to talk puppies about puppies. Are <laughs> they are. So what what about what about puppies, Becky? Just kind of going over, you know, you see a lot of different methodologies and ideas on dog training in general. Not not just hounds, I mean mm. everything. Um and you see a lot of what to do's. You don't see a lot of how to do's, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and I, I've tried a lot of different ways. You know, I've worked for some folks who have had different ways, and I've 
I don't know. I'm kind of all about easy and effective. Sure. Um, there's a lot of different, lot of different methods out there. And as you know, about the only, the only thing dog people can agree on is that the other guy's wrong. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of different methods out there. And this just seems to be what has worked the best for me in my situation. Sure. And you can kind of do as much or as little as you want. You know, you see in the hound world, generally speaking, um, you see a lesser emphasis on, on, uh, obedience mm-hmm. as far as the amount of commands and the responsiveness to it. You're not going to see the same type of obedience you would see and say, you know, a border collie or a field trial lab or a shuts and dog sure. or, or something of oh. that nature. It, it just kind yeah, of is that's, the nature I mean, of that's, the beast. And that, that's a legit observation that, you know, they're, I think a lot of people look at it as, well, they don't need that. You know, they're, they're hounds. They're, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they don't need to learn how to sit and stay and wait and, you know, all of these different things. But, um, but, um, I mean, it, uh, uh, that, that seems like a solid observation to me. Yeah. And I, and with that being said, I don't put a lot of obedience on ours. Um, I mean, I could, it's just something that with the amount, Mm -hmm. sometimes I've got to, in order to make sure everybody's getting attention, getting their needs met, it's just one of those things that at times can go by the wayside, but I have done what I need for me. What what is that? But I do like to teach them, you know, sit, lay down, Uh, generally sit, lay down, come when you're called the first time, because I will not call you repeatedly. Mm -hmm. I, there's few things I hate more than nagging a dog. Um, Stand or sitting to be collared, sitting for your yep. food, letting me touch you all mm-hmm. over, general manners, don't drag me all over mm-hmm. the place, um, having their feet handled, just all kinds of things. You know, I want them to go and our dogs are probably less exposed to people than say your average person who's living in a neighborhood their buddies are coming over like we we live very rurally mm-hmm. um basically they just see us clients vets on occasion mm-hmm. a little more often than i would like lately <laughs> but i want to i want them to be mannered um that being said for me personally man shyness does not bother mm-hmm. me i I kind of prefer that they're not overly friendly to strangers to where they can be picked up off the mountain or something. Um, I have some that think they're running for mayor and they have never met a stranger in their life. And I have some that act around strangers like they could star in a ASPCA Sarah McLaughlin commercial. Um, But I have them just to where they're, they're handleable. I want them to be able to go into the vet's office and stand there not need right. muzzled, not be freaking right. out, just general right. manners. I mean, I think that makes sense. You know, there's there, there's a lot to be said for that. The 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 dog mushing community went through a real a real change of heart when it came to stuff like that about thirty years ago, where you know it used mm-hmm. to be this attitude that don't you know don't pet them, it'll make them soft. You know, don't bring them inside, it'll make them soft. You know, um, the if they were aggressive towards other dogs and aggressive towards people, that just, you know, meant that they were hard, you know, and what it got, it got to the point where, um, 
all of these different races, especially, they started getting quite a bit of pressure from animal rights groups to have better veterinary care. And the veterinarians mm -hmm. were coming in and, and, you know, the races accommodated that the veterinarians started coming in. It just ended up being this thing where the veterinarians were like, you know what, I'm getting tired of being bitten. So <laughs> it became, there became not only a, a, you know, an emphasis on teaching, you know, or, or handling the animals more, but also an emphasis on breeding away from the uber shy aggressive animals um yeah but sure. so much of that and what you know what we found later which i mean i think a lot of other dog sports like you pointed out um already knew it what the mushers found out is that a lot of that has to do with how they're handled as pups the socialization and how much time you actually put into your puppy litters Yeah, and um, it's it's always it's a little bit of an odd thought to me that having dogs that mind, dogs that live in the house, that that is somehow going to undo the genetic and instinct of hundreds of years of selective breeding. Like if, if your dog has that little drive and instinct to do their job, that being overly comfortable or friendly is going to disintegrate mm -hmm. that. I feel like there's probably some things that need to be looked at. There, there may be some other issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can agree. I can agree with I, that. I would yeah. Say. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. And then how much is the genetic component too? I mean, I have a couple of dogs, um, majority of ours. I mean, anyone could walk in the dog. They're, they're going to fire off when someone, shows up mm. for sure um nine tenths of them are going to be really friend you know uh neutral to really friendly right i do have one that was a bottle puppy did not see well his first experience with strangers was having the vet come work on his eyes three times mm. um he, now if he's not confined he'll be your best buddy if he is confined and a stranger comes in, leave mm -hmm. him alone. He's going to try and get away from you, but if he can't, he's, he's going to nail you. Um, and some of that is a little bit of um, some weirdness that came out in some line breeding that we no longer right. use those right. genetics. Um, and then I have another one that I raised from day one. He is extremely man shy to the point where it took Cleve, I mean, no joke, two years <laughs> to be able to catch him without having to reel wow. him in. Super nice to him. He's just very much so a, a soft one person dog, very much so a mm -hmm. woman's dog. He's great now. Anyone can, you know, Cleve or I can handle him when my niece was living with us. Um, she can handle mm -hmm. him fine. But he's a dog that a stranger is not going to be able to interact with. And he's just he's just going to go off in the brush and be sure. fine. But it works out. That's I don't have to worry about him being picked up. And I just kind of know how to handle him and it works out fine. It's Is it something I would strive for? Absolutely not. Is it something that I'm willing to deal with? Sure. That's fine. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. I, can, I mean, I can see that. So, But yeah, I think definitely the way 
I, I totally see that. Yeah. It's, um, but you know, when you talk about, when you talk about setting up basic obedience stuff and handling them and, and uh, you know, how, how do you go about that? Do you start when they're, I, you know, I, I would assume that a lot of the handling, touching their feet and ears and mouths and things like that starts when they're, you know, newborn. Um, what's, how do you sort of go through the process? I, you know, I have my own ways of doing things, but I, I'd like to hear, you know, how do you go about that? I'm a pest mm. with puppies. <laughs> um, I, I just, I love being around them. I love mm. holding them, doing all mm -hmm. that stuff. So, you know, when they're born, check them over, make sure everything's good. Leave them alone for, you know, usually the night. Cause that's generally mm -hmm. what happens. Um, of course. Just make sure everybody's nursing the first day monitor day two comes along time to go mm -hmm. to school. So we utilize the early neurological stimulation program. Some people call it the super dog mm -hmm. program. Um, so we do that days two through 16. And that is basically for those unfamiliar with the program, it's different ways of handling the puppy that, subject them to tactile stimulation and changes in body position that unconsciously stresses the puppy's system, therefore boosting their stress response, their adrenals, their stress tolerance. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do day two through 16 besides just regular. What handling. does that look like? Like, can you um, give me an example of some, one of those that are some of that? Yeah. So you take um, it are three to five seconds or how long, how long you do the movements mm -hmm. for. And what I'll do is take a Q-tip and tickle the webbing in between their toes and their sure. pad. You place them on a cold washcloth for three to five seconds for some thermal regulation mm -hmm. and stress. You hold them in different positions. So you'll have one move where you'll hold them cupped in your hands on their back straight up with their head above their tail, almost like they were sitting mm -hmm. down upside down. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a whole, a whole printout of, of different moves that you do. Mm -hmm. And it takes a very short amount of time. The military came up with it. They no longer use mm -hmm. it. But for me, I mean, for a litter of eight to 10 puppies, it takes a very short amount right. of time. And the puppies that I have used it on, I think I see a difference. Maybe it's a placebo effect, but they're just, I mean, not much bothers them. They're super tough, super tolerant to discomfort. Right. Um, they don't get stressed as bad. So it's definitely something that we see enough of a benefit to spend 10 minutes a day right. doing it. I mean, you know, the, the way I look at it is what have you got to lose? You know, it's, if it's, yeah. if it works, then fantastic. If it doesn't work, you still got your hands on those pups, socializing them, getting them used to your smile. I mean, there's, there's, there's no downside to doing it as far as I, as far as I can see. Absolutely. And it also gives you a chance to check those puppies out. Like if I've got a puppy that I am moving around and he's not squealing or he's not giving me a lot of physical motion and trying to adjust, I'm thinking, mm, something's not right. right here. What's, what's going on with this puppy? Is he starting to fade? What something's not right. quite right. So it just kind of forces you to interact and just really kind of go over the little checklist and make sure they're doing all right. right. Yeah. 
I I totally agree with that. It's it's yeah. I mean, it's remarkably similar to what I did with my husky puppies and what I've done with all of my all of my hounds. Once I've gotten them, it's been a little bit different because they've come to me at eight weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Mike was a little different because I I was there right after they were born, and then I was there every few days until he turned eight weeks. So he those pups knew me really well. Um, luckily the the breeder was a guy who. He enjoyed the company, so um, I could swing in after work and and handle the pups quite a bit. And you know, a lot of what motivated me to pick Mike was his response to the different things. You know, me playing with his feet and you know looking at his ears and checking in his mouth and you know breathing into his face and you know things things like that that just kind of you know g- gave him a vague sense of who I was, but at the same time also gave me a vague sense of what, you know, what he was made out of. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. When you said it was from, what was the time frame that you were talking about that you just said it was, was it to 16 weeks? Uh, it's day two to day. 16. It was day 16. Okay. Yep. What uh, what happens after day sixteen? Yeah, so um, generally speaking, and sometimes I'll actually wait a little bit because we generally dock tails at day two. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll wait until day three, just so I'm not completely stressing sure. them out. Which I mean, the tails really it stresses mom out more mm. than the pups. But just in general, I kind of like to make sure they they've got some got a good grasp mm-hmm. on life. And they're nice and strong before I start doing any type of stressful sure. stuff. Um, and like I said, it's all—it's all very short. They're not freaking out. It's—it's it's subconscious stress that basically triggers their system to amp up. If—if if that makes sure. any kind of yeah. sense. Um, so after that, usually I will start. By the time they're a couple of weeks old, their nails are starting to get sharp. And if you watch when they're nursing, they start kneading yep. and they'll actually scratch that bitch's bag oh, yeah. up. So I'll, I'll take them and just grab a little pair of nail trimmers. I'll set them in my lap and their eyes may or may not be open by this point. It just depends obviously how quick they're mm-hmm. going and I'll just nip the hooks off. So they're used to getting their feet handled. I'll check their ears, check their eyes, or if their eyes are sealed, just make sure there's everything's good there. You know, I've had some pups where the eye will just be a tiny little bit open and it's enough for some bacteria or something to get in there and cause an infection. So I just more of checking everything out. Um, Yeah. It's proactive, proactive. So, and then from, yeah. And then from that point, you know, for the next week, there's not really a ton you can do with them that they're going to cognitively Mm-hmm. realize once their eyes are open they're walking around they're starting to play then you can really kind of jump into to getting stuff right. done um but what you said earlier i also do kind of breathing on them i'll usually put them in my tank top or something and kind of carry them around just getting them used to me my smell sure. and i found it seems to bond bond them a little bit more i think um then when you don't do that, I don't know if they, like Cleve has brought it up. He's like, it's almost like they take it as some type of maternal bond with you more so than, than me. Cause I mean, he's not really packing them around in his shirt. He goes in and messes with them and holds them and stuff. But I don't know if they associate 
just kind of that warmth and everything when their eyes are still closed mm-hmm. to being similar to their, you know, the, the same feelings they get from their mother. Um, I have experimented a little bit on and off with some early scent stuff. Not, not actually where you're laying out treats and having them trail, you know, scent or anything like that mm-hmm. for their dinner, but just kind of introducing them to scent here and there on a rag. Or sometimes I might wipe a little bit of scent along the bitch's bag or her stomach sure. line and just seeing, you know, just kind of messing around yeah. and seeing, uh, I haven't done enough of it to have my mind made up mm-hmm. yet, but so then you're kind of, like I said, you're kind of waiting for them to get to where they're actually cognizant and, and learning things, not just doing stuff, but actually able to learn right. stuff. Then, then I start really, uh, interacting with them more in a learning situation where at eight weeks, I don't want them jumping on the kennel door. And, and that's, you know, some of that I work together as a group, some of that I work together separately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't open the kennel door until they're, they've got their feet on the ground. Right. They, I just, I don't like that. I don't, cause just my luck. Then I, I go to do something and they whack the door open, hits me in the face. I'm pissed right. off and they just don't need to be doing that. So I'll, I'll wait. And I think what I'd like to do the most is let them learn on mm-hmm. their own. Um, I, I think they retain it better that way and let them problem solve. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, this isn't, you know, jumping on the door isn't working. So I'm bored now. I'm going to go check out what's over on this side of the kennel. Oh, wow. As soon as I got off the door, it right. opened up. They're, they're a lot smarter than people give them credit for. I, th- I like to go use. Ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. They, they are. I, I, I think that people don't, you know, complex problem solving, they, that takes a while to develop, I think. But the ability to put two and two together, cause and effect, you know, action consequences, they're, they're, they're pretty sharp when it comes to stuff like that. You know, it's, it's like a, what's that old saying? Uh, bitten twice, always weary, wary, something like that. You know, they're, they're, they're able mm-hmm. to, they're able to figure it out unless you're, you know, unless it's food related and beagles, but you know, otherwise it's, it's surprised me with all the pups I've had through the years, how quickly they learn, you know, to stay away from the cat after they get clawed or, you know, stay away from a car after they've been, you know, clipped or something like that. You know, it's, it usually doesn't take a lot, thankfully. Um, for them to learn. Especially at that young age, they're so impressionable mm. and they're little sponges and their first experiences with everything is going to shape. It's a lot easier to have a good first experience than it is to try and undo a bad oh, first yeah. experience. Man. Um, now that being said, I will, I don't want to say simulate a bad experience, but like I've had a lot of people ask, well, what about your mules and your right. horse and, right. and the puppies? Because I pretty much kick everybody out. Like I don't have a, a specific dog yard or they're loose mm-hmm. and doing whatever sure. they want. Um, generally speaking, I think a lot of it has to do with just the size and the vibration on the ground. And when the mules come running in, you know, they're rowdy and kicking and bucking. Right. And so the puppies are kind of like, oh, that's that's a little intimidating. If they're not, and they continue to want to go in the pen because they figure out that mule crap's really great to eat and then eat so much you throw mm-hmm. up later, you know, beagle things. <laughs> um, 
I'll grab that puppy and walk over to one of those mules and kind of let that mule come over to smell them. And when you've got the head of a thousand pound animal coming at you and you weigh 10 pounds, eh, it freaks them out a little bit and it seems to give them a healthy, healthy respect. They'll still go in the pen, but they will stay, you know, 10 or 15 feet away. Yeah. No, that makes. And for the most part, for the most part, my mules are pretty patient. I've had pups run right underneath one of them and he's like, all right, whatever. One of them, you know, they smell her tail and she's good. I've got some young ones right now that are a little bit more interested in the pups than I would like them to be. Okay. They'll kind of put their head down and they're they're not necessarily chasing them out of there, but it's it's close enough that I I run them off when they do it and it may one may end up needing um actually I, I use an e collar on them at times for things sure. like that on the mules. Actually I have to strap like two of them together. That works. Just to fit around their neck. But yeah. it works. Um, but you know, then puppies, when they get those first experiences, it really helps to form kind of their opinion for the rest of their life on things. And I think it's a whole lot easier to teach puppies at that age than it is an older dog. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, in mm. fact, there are Pat Nolan, and I may be quoting this wrong. It's been a while since I read it, but Pat Nolan, who has been a retriever trainer and many other type of dogs for over 30 years, um, he was putting on a pep, a puppy raising seminar that my dad actually attended and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, they talk about how when those puppies are about six months, the neural pathways start shutting down that they haven't been using. So if like, okay, I don't, I don't need to be thinking about X, Y, Z. So that almost, that part almost like goes dormant and they use those for other things. So if you don't use up that learning ability, you kind of lose it. That's, that's 100% true. 100% true. You know, the, yeah, I had a, had a Labrador once who he had been kept in a crate apart from two 20 minute walks a day had been kept in a crate like the rest of that, the rest of the time, um, until he was about a year and a half. And that's when I got him. And, you know, I put a lot of time into my dogs and I mean, this dog, dang, he never, and in the end, I just chalked it up to that dog never learned how to learn. And he, I mean, he couldn't, it was, it was the most ridiculous thing to watch. And you could say, you know, chart we used two years to teach the dog his name and then you could say you know charlie sit and you could see like the cogs go starting you know you could see smoke like you could you could see him really trying to remember what sit meant and i mean it was something we did every every day multiple times a day and you know he'd he'd sit and then he'd lay down and then he'd stand up and it was just like he couldn't he the, the dog was the least trainable dog I've ever come across. And I, and I, and I do believe that it was just because when he was the, at that sort of formative age where those neural, you know, neural pathways get not just, you know, not necessarily made, but at least set in stone, he just, it, it just didn't happen. So yeah, he, uh, I mean, until the day he died, he died when he was 12. You know, it was like hit or miss whether whether he were whether he sat on his first try. You know, 
It's it's sad, really. I mean, that's that's no life for no. anything. And you know, another example of that is we had a pup that um, we let someone have as a whatever. Um, the dog sat his mm-hmm. entire life until we got him back, which was. I think he was three. Hmm. And we had told this person, if for whatever, I always tell people, if for whatever reason, this dog comes back mm-hmm. to me. Like, whatever reason doesn't work out, this dog comes mm-hmm. back to me. Um, they didn't have any other dogs. This was their only dog, you know. So he never got to interact with other dogs besides, you know, when he was a little bitty guy and, and we had him. And to bring him back into a pack environment was extremely stressful because there were constantly problems because he didn't know how to communicate with other dogs. Like he didn't read social cues, which most people think, oh, well, a dog's a dog. You know, they, they know. They don't. If they don't get that interaction, they don't understand. They don't know warning cues. They don't know appeasement. They don't know mm-hmm. any of that. And that just goes to show, like, if the brain isn't being used, it's a muscle. If it doesn't, doesn't exercise, it right. doesn't grow. And the way the term that you used, learning to learn, is one I also use. And it's it's so helpful in establishing a relationship with a puppy and being like, hey, you can think through this. I also it it doubles as teaching them to be independent and problem solve, but also to look to you if that makes right. sense. I mean, obviously if they're five miles up on the mountain, they can't look to me, but they can sit here and go, okay, let me figure this out instead of just bulldozing their way sure. through life. I mean, um, it, doing the kind of stuff that we do with our hounds, you know, that kind of dog generally doesn't live that long. You know, yeah. it's the unfortunate reality of it. You know, Charlie was a house dog. He could be a complete idiot all of his life. And, you know, we protected him more or less, you know, we were his buffer from the real world, you know, but, um, like Dan, the plot, you know, I, I have a, you know, he, he had some experiences when he was a pup that just kind of formed how he was as an adult or how he is as an adult. And in ways that kind of caught me a little bit by surprise. But, you know, that that's a dog that... Um, I think he could do with a little bit more common sense than he's got. Cause I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, he's, he's two now. I'm not sure he's going to make it to like 12. I'd be surprised. He just doesn't seem to have that, that self-preservation common sense streak doesn't seem to be fully developed there for some reason. I mean, it could be that he's a plot. I'm not sure, but no comment. (laughs) No comment. And, you know, I feel like, too, there's some dogs that are just going to accept you and do what you want, and it's fine. You don't really have to put much work into them. And then you get a beagle, Mm. and they go, why? I don't have to do that. Who made you? (laughs) Like, hmm. You think you run this place? And that's what really kind of kick-started me. I mean, I like 
you know, I've, I've said in the past, I grew up with field trial retrievers. So, I mean, obedience was, you know, if you blow a sit whistle at 350 yards, you better be burning grass with your rear end turning to sit right. and face me. And I think when I got in the hounds, I kind of let that go by the wayside a little bit. I was a little burned out on the obedience mm-hmm. stuff. And then, you know, you get into the beagles. And even right now, the other day, uh, my hooey dog's collar was dying. So I went out. I could hear him trailing out in the sagebrush, and I just walked out to him. And he heard me coming. I could see him looking at me out of the corner of his eye. And I called him, and he'd come to me, and I'd go to step towards him. And he'd he'd step and go just, just a step ahead of me to where I'm not going to let her catch me. Right. And I kind of used the don't make me come up there tone of voice. And he came over all pouty and took off again. But it's like they they give you a little bit of a run for your money when it comes to dogs that are maybe a little more mm. intelligent. Um, and that's kind of pushed me back into the obedience some. So when they're little guys, you know, I will use the luring and shaping method mm-hmm. where I'll use a lot of food, a lot of mental engagement um, to get them doing what I want. And I'll, I'll get into that as well. But when you start breaking down kind of the different training methodologies, I worked for a guy who wanted his dogs a little bit jumpy around him. Mm because it makes them pay attention. Uh, didn't want their tails up, didn't want them wagging, just wanted them, I wouldn't say fearful, but just a little unsure. Hmm. It worked for him. I mean, the guy is Hall of Fame trainer. It, it worked for him, and I'm not saying my way is going to work for everybody. Sure. That's just personally not what I like to see. Sure. I want a dog that's engaged and wants to work with me. I would rather motivate than mm-hmm. intimidate. And I mean, there's, there's time, you know, you can't be completely black and white. There's times where each side needs to sure. come into things, but I would rather lure the dog and encourage them to do the right thing. And then proof them later on when I know they know what I'm talking about and they make a decision to not right. do that. Then there's time for correction. Right. But when they're little guys, you know, say four months and under, super food motivated, and it helps keep them engaged because eight-week-old puppies have the attention span of a goldfish. (laughs) And no matter how exciting I make myself and how exciting I make learning, food really helps with that. So hot dogs for the win because they're cheap and they smell good to puppies. And I can cut them up, you know, whatever. Um, so we can get into that if you want and kind of how I, I start that. And- yeah, I, w- I would love to. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, one thing that you just touched on there that that uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about before we move on is, um, you know, the, the that no matter how interesting you make yourself, um, you know, that you're going to lose their attention span. You know, their attention span is so short that eventually without, you know, without food or without, you know, if you, without food or if you wait too long, you know, or use too much time on it, um, where you, you sort of burn out their ability to learn from you a little bit, I think. Um, you know, I, I've, I knew a guy who he would come down on dogs so hard from they were tiny little puppies for things that they did wrong in his in his mind 
it made it, you know, it, it was consistency, 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 consistency was his deal. But the, but what ended up happening, and I observed this over about 10 years was that the dogs were so used to these enormous eruptions of, you know, anger, frustration, what, whatever, that it got to the point where unless he was there at that sort of erupting anger mode, they just didn't listen to him. They're like, how angry is he right now? Okay, he's not that angry. He told me to do something, but he's not screaming yet. Absolutely. So we've got a few minutes, you know. And I think there's something to be said for that. Like you said, you know, not, not calling twice. You know, you want to... I, I would much rather have a dog that, you know, when I say, hey, come here. I'd much rather have them come then than have me, you know, hit them with a barrage of come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, you know, getting angrier and angrier as I, you know, as I yell. Absolutely. You know, I think, and that kind of goes back to, uh, you know, the shaping and luring teaches a dog what mm. to do and the proofing, which proofing is correction afterwards and basically testing mm -hmm. the situation teaches them what not to do and you can ac absolutely make a dog hard-headed by doing exactly what you talked about i've seen the same scenario um when i was a kid and one of my dad's training groups uh very very high-end talented dogs that would probably have normally been soft mm -hmm. if they were owned by an average to softer mm -hmm. person, <clears throat> but same thing, screaming head off, just blowing up. And that's what got the dog's attention because that was what was finally over threshold for me. I want to enjoy mm -hmm. my dogs. I want to enjoy their company. I don't want to be screaming. And my goal is to constantly be having to use less yeah. pressure. Right. I mean, if they have a if they have a bone or something, or they're running away from me, I want to just be able to say, you know, for example, rawhide come in that tone and drops what he's yeah. doing and come to me. I just life is too short, and when you have that many dogs, I there's no enjoyment in that for me, and your dogs don't enjoy it, and they'll they don't like being nagged any more than you do. They'll take advantage of it, like you said. They'll go, yeah. I've got 15 more times in my name being called before <laughs> right. I actually need to mind. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's true. They, you know, they, it's, like we said, they're smarter than we give them credit for. And I sometimes wonder whether we're not as smart as we give ourselves credit for as dog trainers. But, um, for sure. And then, and you can't get stuck in, in the textbook, what's supposed to be too, like, you're learning that dog while you're teaching that dog, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like everything should be dictated by that dog. What you might consider a reward, if it's not a reward to that dog, it doesn't matter. What you might consider high pressure, if it's not high pressure to that dog, right. it doesn't matter. What you might consider low pressure. It's all based on the dog and the dog's feedback. And if you don't consider that, you're, you're going to have a, you and that dog are going to have a pretty tough road. I you. totally agree. Totally agree. You've got to take the individual into account as you set up the training schedule. And I mean, not just training schedule, but how you approach that dog at all. You know, it's, it's one of those things where 
people kind of want they love the they love that the dogs are individuals but at the same time they kind of want them to be a little bit more you know a little bit i get the impression that a lot of people would prefer that some of the variables were taken away some of the individuality were taken away that there was a little bit more of a like step you know 10-step program to get a good trained dog that works for everybody and that's Mm -hmm. just not how it that's just not how it works. I mean, it's it's never going to be how it works. And, you know, the, that's what I think separates the good dog trainers, you know, from the guys who have had that one or two dogs in their lifetimes that have been super dogs for them because those two just clicked. You know, that dog was buying what the trainer was selling, you know, wholeheartedly and completely. And, you know some uh for some people that one or two dog one or two dogs in their lifetime is going to be enough um you know but i think the really really good trainers out there they end up with a lot of dogs like that because they themselves are flexible enough to you know accommodate that dog's needs and that that dog's yeah what makes that dog tick they're interested in finding that out as much as they are and getting the dog to do what they want them to do. I think another thing that a lot of people, maybe because of our nature, I don't want to say forget about, but maybe don't consider as much because we're humans and we talk and that's how we Mm. communicate and dogs don't obviously. So I think body language oftentimes, um, can inhibit a dog's reaction. Like my dogs know when I'm not paying attention and I'm just kind of half whatever. And and they know when I'm paying attention and and requesting their attention back just by my body. And if you think about a lot of our body movements go directly against a dog's natural body Mm -hmm. language. Like when we're happy, we're loud and we smile, we show our Mm -hmm. teeth. Now, granted, my dog knows I'm not another dog, but that plays a big role in my puppy training too, where I'm just wanting to use the command when I'm luring them into that. But if say they're not putting their weight back over their hips mm-hmm. for a sit, I'll lean mm-hmm. into them. Or if I'm teaching them, I'm luring them into the down position and there's almost like a little bit of a physical block because I'm too close. I'll take a step back. Wham. They mm-hmm. drop right down. It's just like working a horse. I mean, they're, it's kind of a dance, sure. you know, uh, physically and it can, it definitely plays a big role. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Yeah, it's, it's, I just, I just finished writing an article for, um, Colby Moorhead over at, uh, Bear Hunting Magazine about this specific thing about puppies specifically and body language. Um, yeah, it's, I probably told the story before, but it's, or, yeah, I, I know I've told the story before, so I'll actually spare everybody the repeat of the story. But, um, you know, the, the body language aspect of training is so, yeah. Sorry, my brain's working in Norwegian still. So, underverdert, which is not an American word, so I have no idea, you know, you guys won't know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's, um, I don't think people realize how important the body language aspect of it is. And 
And that was something that it took me a long, long time to learn myself. You know, because I, I had this thing where with my huskies and, you know, to a degree with my hounds as well, you know, I was still sort of developing this as, as I got into the hounds, phased the huskies out and got into the hounds. You know, I've had this desire to always be up, you know, to be the, the leader. And in my, in my head, being the leader of this, you know, the coach, I needed to be up. I needed to be the motivator, the cheerleader kind of for when things got tough or when, when things weren't going well, specific, especially when things weren't going well. And it just wasn't working. It just was th th this idea that I needed to always be like positive and motivated and like, we can do this. It, it just, the dogs could see right through me. You know, I could say all of these great things. You know, I could talk in the sweetest tone of voice, but they could still see right through me. You know, and in the end, I decided that, you know, I was basically what it amounted to is that I was lying to them. And that that was making them uncertain. They're like, well, he's saying one thing, but clearly he's thinking another thing. So we don't really know where we've got this guy. Like, you know, what's what's the right call to make here? And, you know, it got to the point where eventually I just had to stop. Like I was actually in the process of selling the, the sled dogs. I just hit a complete wall, just couldn't just did not want to do it anymore. And the last dogs that I sold were, you know, that I was going to sell were my favorites and sort of realized that they were my favorites for a reason. And, and when I started treating them like they deserved to be treated, and I don't, you know, I don't mean that in a cruel sense in the like, well, he messed up, so he deserved to be kicked. That's not what I mean, but in the sense that they deserved for me that I was honest with them when they were messing up, you know, and that I was happy with them when they were, when they were doing, when they were doing well, because it's as you, it's, as you pointed out, you know, you, it's the proofing them portion that I was messing up on because I taught them what I wanted and, and then was giving them confusing feedback when they weren't doing what I wanted, but I was still treating them, you know, still talking to them like they were, what good dogs you are when realistically they, they really weren't being very good dogs right then. Inconsistency breeds insecurity. Yeah. And you have to, I think you also have to teach a dog. You have to allow a dog to fail and to learn they can get through it. For mm -hmm. example. Um, and that's one of the things where you can burn a young dog out on problem solving if they're having a hard time and they can't figure it out. Let's say you're going from teaching them sit to lay down or stay or something, and they can't figure it out, and they're constantly being either told they're wrong or corrected, depending on the age age mm -hmm. of the dog. And they'll sit there and they'll they'll quit you if if you do not go back to something they know. They need to be successful and realize, oh, okay, yep, I screwed up, but I'm good. I I, can, I got that. Let's go back. You know, it's kind of. I don't know. I guess that's with people too. I mean, anything really, if you don't, you don't want to browbeat anything and be like, God, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. And you're not getting that right. It's okay. We didn't get that, but let's right. do this. And that gives them the confidence enough to go back. You know, if I'm trying to get this dog to lay down, he's done it enough to know, but he's still not quite making the connection. 
He's missed the marker three or four times. All right, let's sit, do a confidence boost because the confusion will knock their confidence down. And then they kind of fall apart Mm -hmm. on you. So you can build them back up, um, kind of manipulate them, I guess, really. I mean, and you'll notice a lot of times. No, go go ahead. You'll notice a lot of times when these pups are young, you know, they're at that six, seven, eight, nine week mark and they're doing really, really good. You'll be working on, you know, obedience for 10 days and they're just nailing it. And you walk out there and it's like they shook their head and their brains fell out. Sit. What is that? Lay down. And they're just completely out of it. And it's, there's something between the short term memory and the long term memory storage where things just fall off the radar a little bit. Mm. And you go back the next day and wham, they've got it again. And it's like, I don't, I don't know what it is. I've heard a lot of people, a lot of pros explain, you know, if there is something with that, when things are getting moved from short-term memory to long-term that something just gets lost in translation and and whatever, and you're going to have hard days. And that's where, you know what? Yes, you want to end on a positive note, but sometimes the positive note is putting the dog up for the day and saying, you know what? That's fine. We'll work absolutely. on this tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's, and, and that's, it's something that I've seen the very, very best dog trainers. I mean, in, in any, in any, any discipline. I actually saw it the other day. It was, um, I just had Kevin Murphy here for a couple of weeks. Um, the, world's greatest small game hunter, Kevin Murphy out here hunting with me for a couple of weeks. And, um, on one of the last days he was here, we went to a sheepdog trial that was happening in this area. And we got there late cause we've been out hunting all day and we got to see the last two runs and they were just beautiful examples of exactly what you're talking about because the very first one that it was a nursery trial. So the dogs were young. The very first one got a difficult sheep that wasn't really respecting the dog and the dog wanted, wanted to put, you know, wanted the respect and they kind of went back and forth for a little while. And then the guy could see that the dog was about to go in and, and grip or bite the sheep, which during, you know, during herding lambing is, is something that they're actually trained to do. But during a sheep trial or, you know, during, during trials there, it's, it will get them disqualified. And this dog, this guy read this dog to my eye perfectly because he saw that this dog was about to crack and he saw it half a second too late because he was, a he had stepped down from the podium and was about to call the dog off to call it a day because he, he could see that this was not going to end well. And as he stepped off, the dog's, the body language changed just a little bit and he actually gave it the command to grip because he could see that that dog was going to go in for a bite a millisecond later. But hey, dad told me to do it. Called, you know, he called him off. They ended their, they ended their train, their, their run dog was perfectly happy. Dog was like, Hey, you know, didn't, didn't care. That dog was ready to roll 
they'd ended on a good note, even if they got disqualified on paper. That guy had managed to get that dog through that situation without breaking it. The very next person ended up with another difficult sheep. They handled it completely differently to the point where all the sheep, you know, it's there. There are two sort of really unforgivable sins for a sheepdog. One is to leave the field, like intentionally be like, I'm, I'm done and go and hide under the truck. Another one is if is to just lay down and give up like completely. And that's what happened. The sheep just like immediately picked up on that. This dog did not have, didn't have what it took and that the owner and the dog were not communicating and just grazed, started to graze, completely ignored the dog. And the owner, instead of calling it a day, stood there and screamed for his, you know, his full amount of time until the judges said, well, your time's out. And to, you know that was a that was a lose for that dog. They ended on a terrible, terrible note, and it's you know it's it's exactly it's exactly what you're talking about. I think is is that you know sometimes the very best thing you can do is to happily screw up with your dog and call it a day. And I think we tend to overcomplicate it a lot too. Like, I mean, sometimes you'll read these these training methods or someone saying, well, do this, this, and this. And it sounds like you need to read to your dog for 30 minutes a day and play Beethoven in the background. And it's not, I mean, I'm out here just luring these dogs into the body position with mm -hmm. hot dogs. You know, if they, and that's, that's how I start. I cut up hot dogs into little corn kernel sized chunks, depending on the size of the puppy, mm -hmm. obviously. And... I put them in my hand and I'll have maybe 10 or 15 in my hand and I'll, I'll just be able to feed them out through my thumb and I'll, you know, and I want to set the puppy up for success. Like, because I usually have the other dogs loose, what I'll do is I have my, my heat kennel mm -hmm. and I'll take the puppy in there. I'll put the puppy in there for five minutes before I go in there to work with him because I know that puppy is going to want to explore that kennel. So why would I set myself up for failure getting frustrated because I can't get the puppy's attention because he's curious about all the smells in the kennel. Right. Like you have to be smarter than the right. dog. Just, just set yourself and the puppy up for success because there's plenty of failure later. And there are times you need to allow them to fail in order to get that correction to proof them. So I'll start out with the hot dog chunks and I'll, I'll feed them 10 or 15 just to get them. We're like, Ooh, those mm -hmm. are great. Cleve calls them puppy crack because they, they can't <laughs> resist them. And once I have their attention, they realize, oh, she's got those. I'll take that hot dog. I'll, I'll bring the puppy in front of me to where, you know, his chest is facing my shins. And I will take that scent and lure. I'll, I'll move my hand back over his head because what he's naturally going to do is lean back, which is going to rock his weight back onto his haunches and he's going to sit. I've seen where people will try to teach the dog and I'm not picking on this method. I've seen where people will teach the dog by pushing mm -hmm. the rump down. Well, the first thing they're going to do when you feel pressure is you brace mm -hmm. against it. And instead of the dog going, wait, why, why are you pushing on me? What's going on? And their instinct is to want to jump back forward. This puppy is mimicking the motion of my hand. So he's sitting back. Oh, man, when my butt touches mm -hmm. the ground, mm -hmm. I got a snack. And for me personally, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. 
I don't introduce the command until they have the motion down. I've lured them into the motion and they're starting to realize, okay, when that hand goes back, wham, I'm sitting. Then I start the command. I say it one time. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I, the reason I do that is because sometimes it takes them a while. They're, they're moving around. They're moving to the side. You really need to use your body and your hand to manipulate their body and kind of mirror their movements to where you can essentially force them into that position just by where you, you place sure. your hand. So I don't want to be telling them to sit while they're doing or lay down or whatever position I'm luring them into. I don't want to be introducing that command when they're not following it. But that's just going right. to deaden it. Wait for them to learn the movement and then give match the command to it. And I think something I have noticed spending most of my life around dog sports that are dominated by men, one thing I think a lot of men tend to struggle with is reward. Mm. With re rewarding appropriately for keeping attention and really exciting a puppy. When they're little bitty guys, you know, they're up to four months and everything, they're so excited and everything's great. Um, I was joking around with Cleve the other day. I said, you know, if, if you're not questioning your own sexuality, you're not rewarding happy enough. <laughs> um, if you're not, you know, if you're not feeling a little bit like a fool because you're like, oh yeah, good puppy, you know, and loving on them and really getting them amped up. You're not giving that puppy enough of a mental hit. Right. To be like, yeah, I want, I want to recreate that because that sure. felt great. Um, now you phase that out. Obviously, I'm not doing that with my four or five year old dogs. But it, like everything, you you raise and lower the threshold for things throughout their yeah. life. I'm picking up. And I'm picking up a little bit careful. on your and shirt. And that's where it comes that's, uh, on your microphone. That's oh, sorry. Okay. There we go. That's perfect. How's sorry, that? sorry to interrupt. So, no, no, you're good. Um, and that's where I will often let unwanted behaviors, depending on the puppy, this comes back to reading the puppy. If I have a dog who is tentatively trying to reach up and put his paws on me as I'm bending down to lure the dog into the sit situation, I'll just move my leg. And it may take four or five times where that pup just kind of falls his own weight on his front and goes, okay, well, that's not going to work. And that behavior self-extinguishes. Whereas if I have a puppy who's basically body slamming me and trying to climb on me, he's probably going to get nudged over backwards sure. a little bit with a knee. And then they're like, oh, okay, that's not the appropriate thing. You, you let them discover what the appropriate response is and then build upon mm -hmm. that. And that's what gets a puppy that is, a, is problem solving and is expanding mentally, in, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Um, now, can you over reward if you have a dog that's naturally maybe a little scatterbrained? doesn't quite have the attention span, you can amp them up so much that they won't go right back into that learning mode where it's reward, okay, what's next? Reward, okay, what's next? It's kind of reward, oh my God, right. lose your mind. Try and get them brought back in and dialed in right. again. So you really need to, to base it on the reaction you're getting from the puppy, not what you think should be happening. Right, right. I mean, that's it makes so much sense. And then, I mean, it really does. The, the sitting, you know... I try to apply so much of these things, you know, or at least that mentality to how I train my pups. But I, you know, I see that I've got a lot of places where I could do it, could do it more, you know, like the sitting thing, you know, I've, I'll have to admit, you know, I'm, 
I'm a big guy. I'm not going to like slam squash a puppy down on the floor, but you know, I'll, I'll put some pressure. I'll put my hand on its back end and just, just leave it there knowing that a puppy, you know, eventually I'm not going to push it down, but eventually it's going to get tired of holding my hand up and sit down and then I'll give it the, you know, then I've been giving them the, um, you know, the, the reward praise, whatever, whatever it is at that time. Um, but I like your, I like your way of going about that a lot better. I think that's, um, so much of what we do is smoke and mirrors, isn't it? It is. And it just seems so much easier and they, they pick it up quicker, like laying down, especially a transition when you first teach from laying down or sitting to laying down can be tough on a puppy to figure out. And they're, they're naturally so exuberant. The last thing they want to do is lay down and lay still. So I will use that same method. Whereas, you know, before I was taking the hot dog in my hand, the little hot dog chunk and, and going backwards over their heads. So they leaned backwards. I will have them sit and then I'll place my hand almost on the ground and I'll have my palm facing down because the scent is going to come out of the bottom of my hand, not the top. And what they will naturally do, and this, this takes, you'll have uh, maybe 10, 15 times for them to figure out, oh, I need to lay down. They'll be sitting and they'll contort themselves into all kinds of positions to try and get to that treat in your hand. So that's where I'll use my body to either block or allow their movements. If they are leaning too far forward and I can tell a second before that their butt is about to pop up and they're about to go into a standing mm -hmm. position, I'll, I'll push my hand towards them because it pushes their body weight back and then they don't want to be contorted. So they'll naturally bring their front end down. Right. Whereas if they're too bound up leaning towards their hind end. I'll pull my hand forward and it may just be an inch or a half an inch difference. And they'll pull forward and they'll, they'll place their stomach on the ground and lay down and bam, instant reward. As soon as they do what I'm asking them to do, that's when they get the instant reward. You can't be, you know, three or four seconds behind, especially when they're little like that. Cause you'll, you'll lose them. They won't make the connection. Sure. But I mean, within, Within 10 minutes, you'll have that puppy doing it, doing, doing their desired mm -hmm. response. Now, that being said, you still need to match the command to it. You still need to get it solidified so that you know without a shadow of a doubt that dog knows what you're asking them to do. And, and based on the command, not based on me bending down with the treat, because they'll, they'll read your body and say, okay, well, when I, you know, when I go, she bends over, I go to sit and then that they think that's what's making them do it, not you telling sure. them the command. Um, and then you can start, you know, once some people will do it on a lead, they'll, they'll proof on a lead and then go to an e-collar. Some people skip straight to an e-collar. Um, I tend to do mm -hmm. both. I, I do make my puppies pack around a collar from, I mean, basically the time they're big enough to, just to get them used to it. I mean, Collar a dog being collar wise, every, I mean, I don't think there's a dog out there that isn't going to be, but it's a matter of consistency breeds right. habit. And you don't, when they're, when they're little and they're learning, you don't give them a command you can't back up and you can't make right. them do. So if I have puppies that don't have the, 
come command down and they're still distracted. I'm not going to sit there and yell at them to come 10 times. I'm going to go get that puppy and, and put it in the kennel or whatever I need. Now, once I know they know the command and I tell them to come and they look at me and go off and right. do their own thing, then they're right. going to get a correction. And that's what I talk about when I talk about the proofing, but you need to do these things in increments. You know, you don't just start out with a huge amount of distractions. Everything is just building in increments and it it's so much easier than a lot of ways I think I've seen done in the past. And every everybody's a lot happier with the results. It seems like the dogs are happy to go right. to work. You know, they know, oh, I have to sit in order to get my collar on and turned loose. So wham, their butts right. on the ground. And if they don't, I'll go collar mm -hmm. somebody else. Now there are some dogs that I'm not, I'm not saying don't put pressure on a dog. There are some dogs if they know it and they don't sit, yeah, they're going to get a physical correction. I'm not going over the top. It's, you know, some people use a lead and a healing stick just to proof things. Some people use a collar. It really sure. just depends. Um, but you just want to make sure that puppy for sure knows what you're asking before you start the proofing right. process. Right. And like for me, how I'll, I'll start the come command is I use a tone. I use the tone setting on the collar for my dogs to come find me mm -hmm. or come back to me. Um, so I'll put a puppy on a 25 foot rope and I'll have a collar on it and I will, you know, how I start it is I'll get that puppy's attention because you want to make sure you have the puppy's attention first right. and foremost, no matter what you're teaching them. If they're half paying attention to you, you're, mm -hmm. you're wasting your time. Get the puppy's attention. I don't care if you kiss to them, stomp your feet, something, just get them to look at you and then tell that puppy, you know, come. And most of the time you're going to start reeling them in because they're going to kind of look at you. You start reeling them in, they get to you. Oh, what a good dog, you know? And then I'll walk off and kind of ignore them and let them get distracted. And, and then I'll get their attention again. And I'll repeat that process until they realize, oh, I run to her when she right. tells me to come. Perfect. Once they have that down, then I match that. I'll say, come, beep with the tone. They get rewarded for that. And they just start to associate things. It's, it's really quite simple when you, you let it be, if you don't get too caught up in methodology mm. and... Uh, the psychology behind it. In all reality, it's just a conditioned response. Sure. sure. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, you know what? When I, when I talk to people about, about training, you know, how I train, you know, you've got, you're able to explain in, a lot of detail, not just how you do things, but why, which I can, which I really appreciate because I'm not able to do that. I, I can explain a sort of overall vibe behind what I'm trying to accomplish, but so much of it gets for me. And I mean, I'm not, not, not saying that I'm a good trainer, but so much of what I do with dogs is second nature at this point. For, for, I mean, good, good and bad. And, you know, I, it's, I, I really, I appreciate that you're able to actually break it down, uh, uh, that you're cognizant of not just the how, but the why. 
because that's you know that's that's something that I I, I, lack I appreciate myself. I wish I had <laughs> the ability to do that a little bit more. I appreciate that because I feel like I'm butchering explaining. No, no, this. <laughs> it's I, I understand what you're saying. You know, it's well, the closest I've been able to come to explaining why I do things the way I, I do things with my hounds when I'm training them, especially as pups, is is um, disguising learning as play. You know, so so much of the time. You know, so much of the time I've spent, I'll take the beagle, for example, so much of the time I've spent with him has been out in the forest with an e-collar on. And, you know, there's some people were just appalled at that because I, you know, I started doing that with him when he was three or four months old, you know, with the e-collar before, you know, before that he was so small, I could catch him even if he didn't want to be caught, but, you know, um, and it's and he definitely did right. not want to be caught <laughs> but you know i it's not like i was out there trying to get him to trail anything or really met you know trying to mentally challenge him any more than being out in this great humongous world is mentally challenging for a puppy in the first place you know and he you know he had a lot he did a lot of things very very early which you could say is impressive, but he, none of these things still, you know, we've had some major success in the last couple of weeks, Mike and I, but none of what he's done that has caused that success is anything that he does with any kind of consistency. You know what I mean? It's where it's getting more consistent. It's mm -hmm. getting to the point where he where he knows what I'm asking him. And as he know, as he learns what I'm asking him, you know, I start to maybe ask it a little bit more often. It's not just an association. It's, you know, I can act, I'm getting to the point now where I can actually ask him to do something like, you know, Hey, check out this trail. See if there's anything at the end of it, you know, doesn't always work, but for every time we're out, we are strengthening the associations that I want him to make and hopefully theoretically anyway, weakening the associations that I don't want him to make, you know, not running Fox and, you know, not running birds and things like that. That's a perfect segue into one of the techniques that I use when the puppies are, they, they, kind of are understanding a little more of what I'm trying to get them to do with my hand and how I'm positioning mm -hmm. it like sit. Um, but maybe they, they're not quite sure. So I'll use something that's called a jackpot where in, when they sit and they get it, instead of giving them one hot dog chunk, I might give them four or five, or they may get some hot dog chunks and a mm -hmm. piece of cheese and it keeps it interesting. And they're like, Oh man, okay. That was such a huge reward. That's definitely you know, I definitely want to recreate right. that. And then they start thinking, okay, that's, that's mm. what gets it. Um, and I think it definitely helps to reproduce those results. And obviously you can't do that, you know, when you're out in the hills and whatnot, but that same mentality of just making sure that reward mm -hmm. is there and appropriate for the amount of try that they're right. giving you really, uh, helps to recreate that 
that correct sure. decision on Absolutely. their part. Absolutely. How much do you think... And you have to set them up. Sorry, oh, I was sorry, just going to ask. How much do you think ignoring undesired behavior should play a part in, in training pops? You know, I, I'm not necessarily talking about things that you know, there's grades of undesirable behavior. You know, you've got the, you know, we, you and I have talked about f before fighting, things like that. Something that I'm going to put the kibosh on really fast and pretty hard, you know, because the consequences of those, of the, those behaviors are so severe that it's, it's actually something that I'm going to come down hard on to avoid ending up in that situation. Again, I'd rather come down hard once and, you know, once or twice and not have to do it again. Um, but a lot of times I find that I end up just ignoring undesirable behaviors and, or not ignoring totally as in letting them just continue on and do whatever they're doing. But Rather than tell them no or give them some negative feedback, just sort of deflect into a, something else I want them to be doing. You know, sort of re refocus on something else Ab rather than actually pull focus to that thing as a negative thing. Just refocus onto the desired thing that I hope that they're, you know, I'm trying to get them to do. 100%. Um, and when I'm talking pups in this podcast, I'm using, you know, four months and down. Mm. So a lot of times with their little piranha teeth, uh, when I'm feeding these treats, my hand will get sore because they will latch on to your thumb if you're not fast enough to stick the right, hot dog hot in their dog mouth. hot dog flavored fingers. And I'm yeah. not... Exactly. So I'm not going to correct that puppy for biting. It wasn't an intentional mouthiness. Mm but I'm not going to give him that reward until he starts licking my hand instead of trying to right. ingest it. Uh, and then they get the reward. So there are some things you can definitely extinguish by ignoring, um, depending on the dog. Like I said earlier, you know, if the dog is just putting his paws on me, kind of trying to jump, I'm just going to move my leg and he'll, he'll naturally kind of fall onto his front feet and be like, Oh, okay, well mm. that didn't work. It depends how hard the dog is. Um, I've had some dogs that you can ignore, you know, they might bark here and there and you ignore it. They don't get any attention for mm. it. So they stop. I have some had had some that are very not that way. And so I did not respond by mm -hmm. ignoring. Um, I think it depends mm. on the dog. It depends on the surroundings because each dog is also so fluid. Their working level of pressure and reward is going to be different at home than it's going to be in the hills, out mm -hmm. in public, um, in other scenarios where there's other dogs. Yeah. You just kind of need to mesh yourself to the individual dog and individual situation mm -hmm. at the time. Um, but I have found myself probably ignoring more than I used to. <laughs> there are times, like for example, <sighs> redirection can be a tricky thing because... If it's a behavior you definitely do not want repeated, you want to correct it so it doesn't happen right. again. But you can also, like you said, redirect your way out of it because they are so short attention span. You can just, you know, if they're up in the flower beds, I might toss a rock at the tin on the shed. Ooh, spooks them. They jump off. They get out of the flower bed and they mm. go do something else. Um, I don't constantly want to be coming down on a dog. 
are there times for it, you know, and, and there's, there's been a, a thought process I feel like in hounds also where the wilder they are, the better they're going to mm. be. And then once they're at that starting age, just drop the hammer on anything you don't like. Yeah. And that's tough. Um, and it's not specific to hounds. I mean, I think as, as people have more access to more information via the internet, seminars, things like that, you know, we see a lot of stuff that we didn't see 20 right. years ago, a lot of different methodologies. So there are some things I will definitely redirect. You know, I've heard people say, oh, if, if puppies are getting mouthy and biting you, squeal and turn away. I am not going to squeal. A high-pitched noise is going to excite them. You're basically rewarding right. them. What I am going to do is grab their tongue and be really annoying and stick my finger towards the back of their throat and make it to where they're like, oh, my God, I don't want her hand in my right. mouth at all. <laughs> right. Just kind of reverse psychology it's stuff. Totally. I mean, so much of dog training is reverse psychology. In my like, Honestly, that's been my, my experience, especially with... Um, you know, my, the bulk of my experience coming from the sled dogs is, you know, um, you know, if, if the dogs stop on a, decide to stop on a hill, running up a hill, the sled dogs, you know, I don't want them to do that unless I ask them to. So part of my job is going to be to be looking at them and deciding when it's appropriate to stop and give them a breather so that they don't do it themselves. If I mess up and misjudge the situation and they do stop on their own, we're going to be sitting there for a long time because I'm not going to let them go until they are ready to, until they are losing their minds wanting to go because I don't want them to learn that that's okay to do that. I would much, much rather that they learn that if we stop on our own, we're going to be standing here like idiots for an hour. You know, it doesn't take many times before they learn to just, you know, dig in, pull up that hill. You know, it's, it's the, the, the reverse psychology aspect of it. Yeah. You need to be able to see the yeah. future. It's, it's, I think, I think. And that's where it helps with. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's. It's, uh, what are you doing, Mike? Stop it. Stop it. Sorry. Beagles chewing on socks. Oh, I don't know. Oh, you man. told them twice. I, <laughs> I do the same thing. Honestly, I catch myself doing it and I'm like, dang it. You got to quit yeah. doing that. I am by no means perfect. And I think that's where it comes into too, as far as like being able to see the future and paying attention to what could happen. You need to set your dogs up for success. And I'm, by that, I'm not saying don't let them fail. Don't let them get a correction or make the wrong choice. What I'm saying is if I'm going to use food rewards to train a puppy, I'm going to train before I feed. If I'm going to train in a new environment, I'm going to let that dog check out the new environment uh, until this dog has a solid basis. And then I'm obviously going to raise the bar, but I'm talking, you know, eight weeks right. to four months, still just, just mm -hmm. baby babies. Um, you know, a common mistake you see in dogs that are hunted with more so bird dogs. And this goes back to the association. Oh, I took my puppy out to the range to see if he's gun shy. He yeah. is. <laughs> that's, that's not how any of right. this works. Um, 
And that's a very hard thing to overcome. Can it be done? Absolutely. It's just a lot more work than doing it correctly the first time. And it goes back to making those associations good. If I want my puppy to love a gun, I'm going to have somebody standing, you know, 200 yards away with a blank pistol. And I'm going to be throwing a toy or loving up on that puppy or something that puppy really enjoys. And he's he's not going to be paying attention to that. He's just going to notice it in the background and slowly get closer and work up right. and work up and, and just building threshold. Um, but if, you know, if that puppy is just... I'm not going to take that puppy out from being cooped up and napping and attempt to get his right. attention. Not because you can't, but Shoot why make it harder than it needs to be? Wait until that puppy. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and if I'm trying to get their attention to teach them something, I'm probably going to let them run around for 20 minutes first. You're not going to give a kid a crap ton of sugar and then tell him to go sit in American history class. Right. And then yell at him for fidgeting. Like, it's just not going to work. Work with right. the dog. And it's going to make your life so much easier. Right. Um, you know, like for me, when I'm working on getting them to sit still for their nails, and I have some older dogs that need to counter condition because they've got to where they don't like their nails being done. Um, I started using a Dremel again also, and some dogs are not about that. I'm not going to do it the first part of the day. Not because I can't. But again, why would I want to make it any harder than it has to be? I'm going to let them run around. And then when they have their energy out and they're kind of tired and just want to hang out, that's when right. I'm going to do it. A lot of it is dogs are really so much easier than they're made out to be. You just have to think in terms of right. the dog. Right. I mean, they really have very few needs. Um, and if you can capitalize on those man it's going to make your life so much easier especially with puppies you know the old method of crate training a puppy where you put the puppy in the crate and fuss at him when he cries and endure howling for hours on end throughout the night until the puppy mm. gives up why not put put that puppy in a crate with a kong with frozen peanut butter or something and let him associate the crate with a good thing and right. want to go in there it's just so much easier. And and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I am not a treat pusher, clicker, anti-correction by any means. I'm just going to use that dog's natural motivation to make my life easier. And then once we get to that point where the dog maybe starts getting a little more independent and goes, eh, I don't really want to do that. That's going to say, well, <laughs> sorry, but you're going right. to. I mean, it's... And then reward right. I mean, after what that. What we're talking about here is not, you know, an instead of or either or. It's a... Uh, you know, it's, it's an improvement or a, it's another tool in your toolbox. It's yeah. a mutually beneficial, you know, where you've got this ability then to, to go to, you don't have to go to the same well every time you're presented with the same problem. You've got other options. You've got other ways you can approach it. And I think that that's something that's really valuable is is not having standard responses to everything you know i talk to some people sometimes who say you know well every time a dog does this i'll do blah and it's like well why like that might work some of the time but i can't imagine that that works every single time you know and it's 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 like you said it's almost this aspect of you need to be able to see the future you know at least you know we're we're gamblers all of us 
training dogs. You know, we're, we're gambling that we're going to make the right call. We're gambling. And, you know, it is ultimately a gamble. We can't read their minds, but we're hedging our bets that they're going to do this thing next and acting appropriately. And, you know, the really good dog trainers can make it look like they're psychic. They really can. They really can. But, you know, it's it's something that I, I, I would love to see more people focus a little bit more on is that early puppyhood development, not just getting them out, you know, showing them caged coons or whatever, which is, you know, is not necessarily, is not a bad thing to do. That's not what I'm saying, but it's doing more with them, letting them experience more because, you know, the more, the more they experience, the more flexible they're going to be the more life experience they're going to have, the more confident they're going to be, I believe, in their own ability to problem solve. You know, just in the sense of, you know, like your your dogs, they're used to mules. I very seriously doubt that your dogs are going to have problems with moose. You know, whereas my dogs, I have problems with moose because you know, I've not been good enough about conditioning them to not think that those are big fun things that they can, that they can run. A moose is going to run for a while until it gets angry and doesn't, you know? So it's, you know, something that, uh, something I did, you know, last week while Kevin was here is I took Mike to a horse farm. And that was one of the major motivations for doing that was because I wanted him to learn that these things were not actually all that much fun. And, you know, moose, moose, horse, different deal, obviously. But at the same time, I think they're similar enough so that a lot of the knowledge he gained from that trip is going to translate in his little doggy head to the, the moose. That's one scenario I've been waiting on to happen because we are getting quite the moose population um, around Are they us, Shiraz that, moose where you guys are? That may be interesting. Yeah. They are, yeah. Um, they've they've migrated in naturally. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the, the wolves in Idaho are pushing them down. There aren't enough wolves in southern Idaho to put that much pressure mm. on them. And if there is, and why aren't the wolves here with them? I mean, don't get me wrong. We get ones that pass through. And they go back. Um, or they don't. But they're just naturally occurring, coming down. We actually, um, there's a mountain range on the Nevada-Idaho state line that's just north of my house here. That's excellent, excellent <laughs> moose habitat. And we find their their tracks a bunch, find their beds. I'm cool. still waiting to find a lion-killed <laughs> one. That would make my year. But... Um, yeah, it's just, and then you add in the excitement of other dogs. Because what one dog might not normally do alone or with a buddy, it's kind of like the the bad kid in school that your folks didn't want mm -hmm. you hanging out with because you, normally a polite, respectful citizen, kind of turned into a little bit of a jerk mm -hmm. when you hung out with them. Eh, that happens with dogs oh, yeah. for sure. Um, 
And, and they go through phases too. I mean, I have two males or we have two males that I know about every six months, they're going to get a little blow off on commands. The other day we were fixing some fence for a gal and way up in the hills and I called one of the males and he blew me off. Now, disclaimer, with a hound, I will give them a longer response time than I would with, say, a mm. shepherd or a mal or a lab, just because they are so into their nose, I think it takes them longer to mentally process, oh, she's talking to me. What? So I'll sure. give them a split second longer. <laughs> makes sense. This dog flat blew me off. Like, I, I knew he heard me. He flat blew me off. So I'm like, huh. All right. He was in a spot. He wasn't going to get in any trouble. I just wanted to check something on him. So I called him. I said, oh, okay. We're, we're in that phase again. Great. Because obedience is not a one-time thing. It's a constant. Mm. It's a marathon. It's just constant reinforcement it throughout is, the yeah. life. So when I got back to the side-by-side, -side, I grabbed the remote. The next time I called him, I saw him flick an ear back and continue on. So I called him again and toned him. Or called him again and gave him mm -hmm. a light stim. Haven't right. had to do it again since. They're just... I don't want to say they're constantly pushing the boundaries, but no matter how much we try to be perfect, you know what? There are times where I've called them a couple of times or I've called them and then they've come to me and I've got busy doing something. So I ignore them and they're like, oh, okay, well, right. whatever. No one's perfect. I'm surely not. It's a constant battle. Not, not even a battle, really. It's just a constant reminding of yourself that you need to be cognizant sure. of what you're doing. And for people who live differently than I do, you know, for someone who lives in a cul-de-sac, yeah, I'm going to want an immediate, I mean, drop what you're doing. I don't care what, come back to me. Because that if your dog gets out and is in a road or whatever the case may be, some other stray dog is loose and comes running up aggressively, I want that dog to mind perfectly. You know, I'm going to put sit, stay, come, leave it, place, whatever on that dog. It's just not something I have to do for my dogs personally right now. I have considered starting to do a behind command behind is just yep. what I would call it um, of where now that there is, there's just, it seems like since COVID outdoor recreation has exploded so much mm. in the Western U S that even places where you weren't running into people before now you've got day hikers with their border collie or their blue healer or whatever. And I don't, Strange dogs, there's always mm -hmm. going to be tension, especially when you add one strange dog who's naturally going to be defensive when he comes on to three, four, five, six other strange dogs. And usually that dog is going to be defensive. There's going to be posturing. There's going to be this. Owners are going to be yelling, he's friendly. Don't worry. That dog's probably going to be acting mm -hmm. offensively to the other, you know, my personal right. dogs, whatever. It's just a, a situation that can cause problems in a hurry. So I would like to be able to just go behind, you know, or leave it and have my dogs yeah. come up behind me, let the other dog and person mm -hmm. go on, whatever. And it's just something where when you have a lot of dogs, you need to be on things more because they feed off of each other and they'll feed off of each other's right. energy. So if one dog blows you off, it's going to encourage the other Absolutely. dogs too. So this is not stuff, even though it's stuff that happens in a four-month time frame, this is stuff that's going to set them up for the rest of their life and to make it so much easier for you to build on that. And then I feel like, too, the better mannered your dogs are, let's say something happens, God forbid, you get killed in a car wreck, you know, whatever, and your dog needs to find mm -hmm. somewhere to go, 
if that dog is mannered, that dog is going to be appreciated wherever he goes and he's not going to end up being dumped at the local pound or passed around because he has bad habits. Like we all want to focus on the hunting stuff, but you still have to live with the dog the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's really a great, uh, sort of a, a great place to end. I think is, you know, we all want good hunting dogs, but you got to live with them the rest of the year. You know, and that's, I've, I've had some hunting dogs that were just, ultimately was the issue with Dan was that loved him as a hunting dog. I mean, to this day is the best dog I've ever hunted over, but, um, you know, he, it, it just wasn't working, you know, and, uh, you know, then I've got the flip side, you know, Buzz, who's the best house dog of all time, but is completely useless as a hunting dog at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's going to be the, the, what you're talking about is setting up from a very, very young age. And I, th- I think that that is, you know, really important to do it from a very, very young age. You know, like you're talking about from like day two you're setting the groundwork for and it doesn't it take doesn't, that long it doesn't it takes such as i mean five it's you'd be amazed when they're so little 10 yep. minutes a day quality over quantity i mean you can have them handling in in literally 10 minutes a day we've all and it, it's hard to find the time but you know what I, i've got to my point where i i've kind of stopped saying oh i don't have the time and saying i haven't made it a priority i can take 10 minutes out of my sleep or social media mm-hmm. or t- whatever the case may right. be. And, you know, if I'm in a hurry and I've got to do this, I'm going to take that pup with me and work him along the way. And we can't get caught up in our own sport either. You know, if you're really looking to understand the way dogs mentally tick, sign up for an online course or, or an online yeah. seminar from a retriever trainer or a just an obedience trainer or whatever. And you can pick up so many different little tricks for your tool bag that you can just uh, modify to fit your scenario, Absolutely. I guess. Absolutely. I totally, uh, yeah, I totally agree. You know, I, I think that if we spent, if you legitimately do not have 10 minutes a day, to put into your puppies, then you're too busy to have puppies, in my opinion. Because for them to really, for you to have a good of because the ten minutes, yeah, for you for you to be able to keep track of that litter, their health, how they're doing, how they're eating, you know, you're gonna need at least ten minutes a day. And that ten minutes now is gonna save you hours days and a lot of frustration later days and days and days and days (laughs) yeah no i totally uh and i mean if anyone what i need to do is kind of video because it's so hard to explain over a podcast Mm. how i'm moving my body and moving my hand and and luring them into these positions um but you know there's a lot of good youtubes on luring if people are trying to to figure things out i'm always more than willing to send folks videos too. It just it just makes life a lot easier for everyone involved and keeps keeps it fun. It, I I yeah, I can see that. 
I can see some room for improvement on how I'm going about it. Um, certainly. And I think that I hope that some people get kind of get past the sort of pictures of Caesar Milan that are going through their heads as we're talking about, go, get, you know, going a little bit, spending a little bit time on the obedience aspect. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't be using the, uh, the term obedience, you know, in the hound world, I guess they, you know, call it putting a handle on a dog. And that's not just getting the dog to come when you call, you know, it's, it's getting the dog to be, it's teaching the dog to how to learn is, is what we're talking about here. And, you know, a dog that is more capable of absorbing information, absorbing, absorbing events, situations, consequences, and variables, and translating that into knowledge. Any pup, any dog that's good at that is ultimately, I believe, going to be a, hunt, a better hunting dog. If your dogs have the genetic potential to do what you want them to be doing, what we're talking about is is only going to help. There's no downside to doing to doing this, you know, at at all. And it's not it's not about yeah, and it's not about turning them into a robot. Right. It, it's it's expanding their mental horizons and teaching them that they can, you know, like my little hound dog pool we have here. I'll put. I've had problems with puppies falling in. Actually, my my latest beagle when he was little fell in and I do have a ladder so they can get out, but I had taken him and taught them don't just panic and scratch the sides and I'll help them get out to where they're like, Oh, okay. It, they learn to think things through and look for a solution versus just giving into instinct and right. panicking. Right. Absolutely. And that translates like it doesn't just stay in your yard. That translates to other things as well and just makes them all around easier to be around, I feel like, and just kind of rounds them out a little bit, Absolutely. maybe. Absolutely. Uh, totally agree. We're going to uh, I feel like we scratched the surface of this, but I th we may need to talk about this a few more times. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah, there's there's so much depth people can can reach and go into it's definitely something that uh has to be broken up into small yeah, doses i yeah i i agree but it's been fun nerding out with you becky i appreciate you coming on it's one o'clock in the morning here so i might call it a day but um yeah absolutely thanks, thanks for coming uh, on and talking thanks about for having it. me on and i'm gonna run out and get these dogs fed and excellent excellent well good I uh, will get you back on here in not too, too long. Man, I love that sound. <laughs>